Good morning and welcome. Grand Rounds is provided by Georgia Heart Institute with support from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. Dr. Barry Mers will disclose her relationships in her presentation. To claim CME credits today, answer the survey evaluation. If you are viewing online, the link will be posted into the chat. Those attending in person will receive the link or QR code at the end of this session. If you have a question for the presenters, please hold until the Q&A segment. Online viewers may type questions into the chat and I will read them at the end of the session. And now a few words from Dr. Samity. Well, good morning. It's, it's a pleasure to see everyone. I know we have lots of people online as well. It's, it's really a huge honor for us to host this morning's Grand Round speaker. Um, Dr. Noel Barry Mertz um, holds Irwin and Sheila Allen Chair in Women's Heart Research, is director of the Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Center, um, is the Linda Joy Pollan Women's Heart Health Program Director, as well as the Eric J. Glaser Women's Heart Research Initiative Director, and the Director of the Prevention Cardiac Center at Cedar sinai Heart Institute, uh, which is all, all of you know is, is the top two or three heart institutes in the United States. Um, she's also Professor of Medicine at Cedar sinai Medical Center. Dr. Merce's research interest includes women and cardiovascular disease, mental stress and heart disease, and the role of exercise and stress management, ladies and gentlemen, in reversing this disease. Um, as, as many of you might have heard her on TED Talks or on TV, she's a prolific lecturer and a teacher and has impacted generations of women and men cardiologists and really has opened the door for the field of women's heart research um, and women's heart clinical care, which as we know is very, very different than, than men's heart disease. Um, in addition to all this, Dr. Mertz has received numerous, numerous investigational grants and chairs the NIH's sponsored Women Ischemia Syndrome Evaluation Initiative, the WISE Initiative, which as many of you know, was the initial um, NIH funded studies that made the observations that women's heart disease, certainly at the microvascular and at all levels is very different than men's. Dr. Mertz receives, has received numerous awards and honors and her extensive publication record spans over 450 scientific papers, over 315 abstracts and myriad of book chapters and countless peer reviewed journals. She's on the editorial board of many of those journals. She's earned her bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago um, and then went to medical school at Harvard, completed her residency at UCSF and um, served as a chief medical resident before completing her cardiology fellowship in clinical nuclear uh, cardiology at Cedar sinai we, we had a delightful time at dinner last night with uh, Dr. Burkle and um, Dr. Glenn Henry, as you know, is joining us next week. Um, and I can't wait uh, for you all to hear both in person and online uh, what Dr. Barry Mertz has to tell us about women and ischemic heart disease and update today. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, my friend. Well, a lovely introduction and um, thank you, Dr. Samady. And we've been, we've been working on uh, doing this. So, um, it's great to see uh, folks in the auditorium as well as those that are attending in virtual. Uh, our Heart Institute Grand Rounds, the majority of folks uh, are still virtual. And um, it is nice because it's early in the morning, right? So it, you can still have that coffee and be sitting in your study and, and uh, enjoy the morning. All right, let me make it go forward. There we go. Uh, these are my disclosures. Um, the, to my knowledge, they do not re represent um, conflicts, but of course we always disclose. And um, let's move on. I thought I would start out uh, just by talking about our team 
uh, and this is our uh, clinical team, but it's also our clinical research team because I'm a clinical uh, research investigator. So we have three faculty cardiologists, um, one faculty internal medicine, uh, vascular medicine and menopause trained. Uh, and that's turned out to be a real boon for us in terms of getting women that should be off of the hormones because they just had a heart attack, uh, rather than trying to negotiate with the GYNs, uh, actually have an endocrine vascular medicine trained uh, person. We have two nurse practitioners, we're adding one. Um, and they do a lot of our protocol work and I can talk about that as needed. Uh, we have three dedicated uh, clinical research fellows that are just for us and uh, they're serving um, a year or two years uh, with the idea that they will become investigators. Uh, two basic science PIs in their teams, uh, three, excuse me, 11 research staff, community education coordinator, where have a fair amount of commitment in our uh, philanthropic side uh, to community education in addition to GME. Um, three PSRs, uh, those are our receptionists and uh, management assistants. So it takes a team, it takes a village um, to sort of get things done. These are the kinds of things that uh, we provide, and this is a complicated slide. I'm gonna uh, talk today about uh, what Dr. Samady referred to as the differences in women's heart disease. Uh, so we do preferentially try to see folks, uh, women predominantly, but about 10% of our population now is men, <clears throat> persistent chest pain, and then suspected ischemia with no obstructive coronary disease, now fondly called INOCA, myocardial infarction with no obstructive CAD, MINOCA, uh, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy or broken heart or stress heart syndrome, and then a SCAD, spontaneous coronary artery uh, dissection. Um, so these are pictograms, of course, of these two relatively new terms, but if you're reading the literature, you should be sort of seeing these being used more, more often. They're not yet ICD-10 codes. They probably won't be because they're more of a syndrome, and I think I hope to show you that there are underlying etiologies to be diagnosed and pursued and treated uh, rather than saying that this is just the diagnosis. We knew about this quite a while ago, and uh, as the Women's Ischemia Syndrome Evaluation, which is sponsored by National Heart, Lung, and Blood, and we're approaching our 30th year of continuous funding, but this goes way back to the beginning where we were really asking what is going on, and this was a publication uh, by one of our co-investigators in 2007, really demonstrating that women in the black bars compared to men in the gray bars had much more non-obstructive or even no obstructive coronary disease in the setting of ACS, unstable angina, even N-STEMIs and STEMIs. Uh, and these were core lab adjudicated uh, uh, studies. So this wasn't sort of, you know, just somebody's uh, random idea about uh, whether or not these arteries were truly open. Uh, so it was common in women up to a third um, this turns out now to be increasingly common in men, and uh, this is the VA CART, which is a registry of every angiogram done at any Veterans Administration Hospital across the United States. Um, this particular publication by Tom Maddox and his uh, colleagues, uh, 37,000 male patients, most veterans still are men, uh, military service now is about 20% women, so women are, will be coming uh, to the VA in larger numbers, but um, in terms of contemporary data, uh, what this slide demonstrates is that 47% of men now undergoing clinically indicated invasive coronary angiography have non-obstructive or normal coronary arteries. So <clears throat> something that we've been studying in women, a little bit of the canary in the mind, uh, now we think is increasingly gonna be relevant in the type of uh, the phenotype of ischemic heart disease that we're seeing increasingly in men. Well, of course, uh, you know, here's phenotypes. Uh, epicardial coronaries, we know a lot about that, right? We, uh, we were given uh, coronary angiography in the 1960s. Uh, we've been doing it ever since. Uh, we're very good at luminology. So atherosclerotic coronary disease on the left of this slide, well-known 
We've got a lot of treatment strategies. Some of them are plumbing, but increasingly optimal medical therapy seems to be uh, the way to manage most of this. In the middle of the slide, vasospastic disease, some of us learned that as Prince Metals, angina. <clears throat> uh, this, it turns out in big, big studies that actually did functional testing, it's probably about 3% of the ischemic heart disease that we see. Um, and these are the patients that you see once, you put them on a calcium channel blocker, they come back once a year for refills. They don't need anything else. And if you ever try to say, well, I'm not sure you need that anymore, or your blood pressure is running a little low, they're like, nope, I need that pill. I ran out of it when I was on vacation and my chest pain came back. So what was the dark side of the moon was the right side of this slide. And um, we, we knew, coronary physiologists knew that microvasculature really portended the majority of, of resistance. It really is the deal maker. And yet we knew very little about it because we had become anatomists. So here's what physiologists uh, have told us for, for decades. Epicardial coronary arteries normally contribute less than 10% of the coronary vascular resistance. And resistance, again, is it determines flow. And we know, we've known this since the 1960s, hemodynamic significance is present when greater than 70% of the lumen is obstructed. The coronary microvasculature is responsible for that 70% of the resistance under normal or physiologic circumstances. So who really determines flow then? So here's a, a pictogram of the epicardial coronaries. They're called epicardial because they're on the outside of the heart, right? <clears throat> and uh, they are controlled uh, in response to nitroglycerin, acetylcholine, and shear stress. And they have a fair amount of smooth muscle. So they are conduit arteries that are responsive <clears throat> to these uh, stimuli. Now, what we're talking about in the microvasculature then are the intramyocardial arterioles. They're diving into the muscle. They are highly responsive and they auto-regulate um, with uh, uh, concentrations of metabolites. So pH, <clears throat> other things that are saying the heart muscle itself, the cell is saying, I need more flow. I need more oxygen. At the end of the day too, because flow always wants to travel downstream, uh, what happens at the end of the uh, interarterioles as well as the subendocardium is going to be very dependent on that left ventricular and diastolic filling pressure. And if that is elevated, it is going to be hard to fill the subendocardium. So let's fast forward now because we studied a thousand women and now we've studied them for over, uh, we've followed them for over 10 years. Uh, what we've been able to demonstrate is the impaired vasodilation of the small vessels and that is tested by dominantly by adenosine very conveniently um, is uh, uh, you know, uh, one phenotype or one endotype. And then the increased vasoconstriction is the other one. And this is uh, most not easily tested by acetylcholine, although it's getting easier. Um, and you can have both of these uh, endotypes. So uh, this is uh, you know, now important and, and on the map and capable of being tested. And with 10-year follow-up, what we've been able to demonstrate, and again, this is uh, WISE was exclusively women, but we imagine that this will be increasingly relevant to men, that in the setting of no obstructive coronary disease, the impaired dilation is an adverse prognostic predictor for MACE, cardiovascular adverse events, death, MI, stroke, development of heart failure, um, yeah, MI as well as all-cause mortality. So um, the, the reduced dilation turns out to be sort of the one that you really wanna look for if you're looking for prognosis. The increased epicardial coronary constriction predicted angina hospitalization. And this one is the one that's most closely linked with um, symptoms. And again, this is not Prince metal angina. This is constriction of the microvasculature uh, in response to these prov provocative agents. Um, and uh, it is predicting angina. So if you were going to take this now back to your clinic, what would you, who would you be thinking about? 
Um, and number one, we're not talking about everybody that ends up in the emergency room and gets a CT angio as they are so quick to do these days uh, for any amount of chest pain. Uh, what you really are looking for are as a cardiologist, as an internist, uh, as a specialty uh, uh, nurse practitioner or a PA, you're looking for people that look like they have uh, cardiac chest pain. And the new chest pain guidelines chaired by my colleague, Dr. Martha Galati, give you some nice uh, flow diagrams for trying to decide, does this seem like it could be cardiac chest pain? Um, and so this is who you want to test. Um, we still start, if we're getting a de novo patient who has not already been worked up, um, we pursue non-invasive stress testing. Um, we don't want to take people up for invasive or even uh, non-invasive advanced imaging if it doesn't look like they have ischemia. So uh, are they able to exercise and the baseline ECG is okay? Yeah, we do a routine exercise stress test. We look at all of these bullets. Do they get the symptoms? That's very helpful. Um, do they have ischemic ECG changes? Do they have a compromised MET capacity? Can they not get out of two stages of a bruise protocol? And yes, the bruise protocol is, is useful in women. Um, arrhythmias or a hypertensive response to exercise. So we will look for a wide variety of signals that would say, yeah, this person is not completely normal. Uh, we should move on. Now, if that's not conclusive, of course, you can always add an imaging test. This is what we do in cardiology. The stress echo and the stress spec are not typically useful in this situation. If they are positive and you are, have that handed to you, maybe a referring physician ordered it, of course you can use it. But in general, these two modalities are uh, basically formed to detect epicardial segmental disease. They're looking for obstructive CAD uh, in those epicardial coronary arteries. So you'll have one normal wall motion against an abnormal wall motion. You'll have pixel densities on the spec that are down compared to a normal wall. You're not gonna see that with microvascular dysfunction, which is quite more homogeneous. And in general, if you're gonna see anything, it'll be in the subendocardium. So, that's where PET-CT as well as adenosine stress MRI come in. So these are advanced imaging and you would wanna find out what capacity you have in your local labs um, and what expertise do they have um, because that's what you would order if you could. Um, we do a lot of cardiac MRI. It's a strength for us at Cedar sinai Dr. Dan Berman and Dr. D.B. Ali um, lead uh, both amazing clinical as well as research facilities. Um, and that black rim, um, that is the microvascular subendocardial abnormality. This is a patient that was having an NSTEMI and um, open arteries, oh, what a surprise, a female, oh, what a surprise. Um, but this is the kind of um, imaging that you can see with cardiac MRI. So when do we go to invasive testing? Um, because again, it's invasive. Uh, we are looking for patients that have evidence of ischemia, so it's not all the chest pain in the world, no obstructive coronary disease. And then we typically, uh, for um, a clinically indicated test, that they need to have some kind of symptom that is bothersome to them. I'm not saying that we won't go into the silent ischemia phase, and, and we probably will, uh, but right now, uh, this seems sort of reasonable to do uh, if you're going to order an invasive test. And then we often will um, be responsive to patient and physician needs that the chest pain was really refractory to standard medical management. They tried a calcium channel blocker. They tried a beta blocker. They even tried renalazine. The patient still has chest pain. Everybody's confused. What should we do? Um, and then we also will get folks, um, patients and physicians, uh, that have a strong preference for a definitive diagnosis. Uh, the woman might be young of childbearing age. She's uncertain, uh, as is the referring physician, about whether or not she should take all this medication. Um, uh, some uh, patients are uh, either rural or remote or even in Los Angeles, and their local doc thinks they're nuts and ha they have been sent to the psychiatrist and the patient feels confident that there's something wrong with her heart. Um, so these are the kinds of patients that we would uh, elect for the for the invasive testing. And we've published along with Mayo Clinic and R2 registries, um, 0 0.6 to 0 0.7 serious adverse events. Um, and so these are uh, infrequent, 
Um, these are typically elective. You're not doing it in the middle of the heart attack. And uh, uh, these are uh, quite safe in ex experienced interventional hands. Um, we call it uh, functional coronary angiography or coronary functional testing now. Um, we confirm that there's no obstructive coronary disease. Uh, we always record LVEDP, so that pigtail goes down again. A lot of people have stopped doing that because of echo, um, but it's it's important to measure, and it turns out it's often uh, elevated, which is often surprising to folks. The valves are fine. The pumping function seems fine. Um, we are still using Doppler flow wires, although we talked about it last night. The company is not making them anymore, so we're going to be shifting to the, um, the IMR uh, catheters pretty soon. Uh, confirm an adequate flow, and this is a, a flow signal. So this is a, a Doppler signal. It's something that you see in this tracing, but it's not anything that you necessarily see on the angiogram. Um, the flow reserve testing to the adenosine uh, is a, a, um, it's a ratio, uh, and it's just asking how much do the small vessels dilate. I am going to show you some pictures so you can be believers. Um, the acetylcholine, the vasoconstrictive component, it's supposed to dilate, um, often does uh, promote vasoconstriction. And uh, as you can see in this middle, this is the epicardial coronary, but you can sometimes see it in the microvasculature. And the way that you know it's, it's abnormal in the microvasculature is again, you calculate a coronary blood flow uh, ratio. These are these uh, newer catheters, and for those of you that are interventional, um, these are pretty easy. They're pretty slick and uh, pretty easy, uh, and uh, microvascular dysfunction, you see it, that last bullet, uh, is an IMR that's greater than 25. So now that we kind of described this, I'd shown you the follow-up. It's not a healthy thing to have. It's real. Uh, we should be looking for it, but what if you find it? <laughs> what should you do? So our next line of inquiry was uh, finding mechanisms, because if you can understand uh, root causes or contributing mechanisms to a phenomenon, you can start to think about how you might treat it. Um, and so we had found, you know, again, if you just take all comers, people that went up to the cath lab and had no obstructive coronary disease, about half of these patients have coronary flow reserve or coronary blood flow abnormalities. Um, and the prevalence is even higher if, you know, on one of those tests, you had a positive troponin, you had some ST segment depression. So if you were just kind of guessing, you'd be right about half of the time. And if you had some real objective evidence, you'd be right a lot of the time. Um, one of the first mechanisms, and this was novel at the time, it's not so novel anymore, uh, we did intracoronary intravascular uh, ultrasound and uh, led by Dr. Carl Pepin. And this demonstrated in our wise subjects that over 80% of them had coronary atherosclerosis. So despite those luminograms, and they looked pretty darn smooth uh, to, to most people, uh, they actually had a fair amount of plaque. Uh, so this was a little eye-opener, but it is telling you about a possible atherosclerotic mechanism. Another mechanism early on is uh, we had access to magnetic resonance spectroscopy. This is a non-imaging component of MR, uh, and it is a true gold standard for that tissue, those cells, whether or not they are ischemic because it's looking at phosphocreatine and ATP uh, shifts in response to the stress. And what you can see in the red circle and the red arrow is in our wise women with no obstructive coronary disease, they had myocardial ischemia that was as frequent and of a similar magnitude uh, to patients with LAD stenosis all the way on the right um, and quite different from our reference control group. So this was really evidence, um, very solid evidence published in the New England Journal uh, the, these were not false positive stress tests. If you remember um, back in the day, um, and hopefully this is not being done so often anymore, a breast artifact, right? It's, it was always a woman. And so the abnormal perfusion was either breast artifact or a false positive. The ECGs were false positive. So we hope that we've kind of put that to rest. 
And then we really saw mechanistically that this coronary flow reserve, as I mentioned before, was really portending an adverse prognosis. And as opposed to the 2.5 threshold that's kind of more commonly uh, reserved, which appears to be a male threshold, um, because the research prior was only done in men, uh, that we had a cut point that was less than 2.32 for our wise women. Uh, we also demonstrated that persistent chest pain in the setting of open arteries also had an adverse prognostic. Uh, so if that woman, a year later, she's still coming to your clinic and she still has chest pain, uh, that was a twofold increased risk. If you look at the bottom two lines, um, those were the, we had a smaller uh, um, subgroup within WISE that did have obstructive coronary disease and persistent chest pain didn't, didn't make a difference in them. And we think because they were being treated, right? Doctors treat what they can see and what they understand. If you can make a diagnosis, you can make some therapeutics. Um, and so again, it suggested that we needed to make some inroads in, in considering how to treat these patients. So if we were to say, okay, well, mechanisms uh, to this INOCA include coronary atherosclerosis, true myocardial ischemia, which it had an adverse prognosis. And then I'll show you observational and some randomized intermediate outcome trials. Um, we're starting to support therapeutic strategies. However, at that time, existing guidelines focused on symptom management and current clinical practice is reassurance. Yeah, this is not a problem. Uh, so we concluded that therapeutic trials were needed. Let me show you some of the observational data. We're going to go back to the VA CART. Uh, and so again, these are men. Um, you see a very low use of optimal medical therapy in an elevated one-year MI rate following an INOCA angiogram. And if you look at mild non-obstructive, moderate non-obstructive, um, the hazard ratio is elevated, and yet if you look at the class of discharge medications, uh, very low use, and in fact, sometimes they would be pulled off of their medications. They would be like, well, I guess, you know, you don't need that statin. You don't need the, the uh, low dose of aspirin. Um, so this is a very real phenomenon of, uh, you know, lack of acknowledgement of coronary atherosclerosis. We have another observation within a randomized controlled trial. This is that Scott Hart trial. And if you remember this in the UK, uh, patients that were coming to their GPs um, with stable chest pain needing to be evaluated, they were randomized into the right of the slide, standard of care only. So that was often a stress test and maybe consideration of some preventive medication if your score was high enough versus standard of care and then a coronary CT angio. And what you saw within the 4.8 year follow-up was um, they had a lower death rate in the CT angio uh, group. Um, and again, I'm making an observation because this was not the primary outcome of the trial. But what you saw was those that had standard of care plus a CTA uh, were much more likely to have a treatment change, meaning an initiation. Uh, it was mostly preventive meds, aspirin and statins. Um, and uh, they even had more antianginal therapy, 10% actually, the docs recognized that maybe these two things were related, atherosclerosis and angina. And when they did a longer term follow-up in a subsequent observation within this trial, um, uh, again, uh, death MI uh, was significantly reduced. We have another, uh, you know, out of the box trial from the UK. This was the Orbita trial. If you remember it, it was quite uh, stunning and even controversial. Um, asking the question, uh, should we be doing PCI? Should we be throwing in stents for angina? And the English want to always ask these important questions. They have these nice guidelines, NICE. They're not that nice um, in terms of uh, regulating what, uh, how they use their uh, social healthcare dollars, right? So they really wanted to know, do stents uh, improve uh, angina? And so they randomized, again, uh, a bunch of patients at five UK sites. Uh, they all had to be eligible for a PCI, um, and they, had, uh, they were randomized to a real PCI, as you can see, or a placebo PCI. So they actually had an angiogram with a sham PCI. 
you could, only in the UK could you do this. Um, and what you see is the SAC angina scores were no different. And the Seattle angina, the SAC scores, pretty well validated um, and work in women and men uh, equally well. And what was particularly interested uh, about the lack of, of difference, and, and to say it a little more forcefully, those that got the sham PCI had as much improvement in their angina as those that got the real PCI, all right? So it's not like nobody got better. They all got better. And this was despite improved blood flow in the epicardial coronary arteries, indicated here by the improved stress echo scores. So this really tells you something else is controlling angina. The epicardial coronaries are, like we know from our physiologists, not contributing uh, to, to angina burden. And finally, we have the ischemia trial. So let's look observationally within those trial outcomes. And again, uh, this was, again, you would only do such a big trial in the US. Only we would spend this much money on a single trial. But a randomized controlled trial for severe ischemia and looking at optimal medical therapy alone versus optimal medical therapy plus a revascularization approach. And uh, kind of everybody knows these results. I'm going to give you Judy Hockman's comment to the results. The results are on the, on the right, right? So there was, there was no benefit for death MI, which is their original primary outcome, and then a combined uh, MACE. Uh, and what, you know, uh, Judy commented on is in the subgroup that had angina, because ischemia trial included silent ischemia. So not everybody had to have angina to get in. You just had to have ischemia. Uh, and she said for people without symptoms or those who've never had symptoms uh, or well-controlled symptoms, there's really no benefit. So even if you're, again, doing revascularization for angina, uh, there's not really much of a benefit. Um, and so how do we explain angina? And um, I work with Peter Block and he's always such a good, he has a good way of sort of putting things. And so, and he's interventional. So he's like in the club, right? So um, in summary, a stenotic coronary segment could produce myocardial ischemia by stress testing and produce symptoms of angina. Treatment by PCI restores blood flow, improves ischemia, improved symptoms sometimes, but it has no effect on mortality outcomes. And in addition, some patients have ischemia by stress testing and angina, but have no stenotic coronary segments. How do you resolve this paradox? Think of coronary disease as a linear disease, and it acts focally and diffusely. And in addition, CAD secondarily affects vasomotor activity of that distal coronary circulation by chronically releasing multiple vasoactive and atherogenic molecules. PCI does really more than increase blood flow to an already abnormal distal circulation. So, and the prolonged effects of distal coronary bed may be just beginning. The result is chronic myocardial ischemia due to distal vessel pathophysiology. And what Peter didn't say, but what we're now studying is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Because if this goes on long enough, this is what our prognosis data is showing is that these women go into HFPF. So a relatively new but continuing line of inquiry, uh, we now have uh, ultra high sensitivity TNI levels um, on these, uh, our original WISE subjects. And these are women walking around. I mean, these aren't women in the intensive care unit having ACS or NSTEMIs. Uh, and if you uh, just check routine uh, blood samples for uh, high sensitivity TNI, uh, you will see that both the microvascular constriction as well as the limited coronary endocardial dilation. Folks that have that, they have the coronary microvascular dysfunction, have positive uh, ultra high sensitivity TNI. And so this is now, uh, we have two R01s looking at these knowledge gaps, the red arrows that have question marks on it. Uh, those are things that we do not yet know. Um, does this metabolic dysregulation um, uh, uh, cause a stiffening of the heart, uh, shifting the myocardium uh, traditionally uses free fatty acids as its energy source? Um, and uh, animal models and some human um, orphan diseases uh, demonstrate that shifting back to a fetal 
myocardial energy metabolism uh, is uh, associated with triglyceride buildup in the cell. Uh, fatty heart. And so is fatty heart uh, possibly a root cause for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction due to this indolent ischemia? Um, we're also testing, are we uh, having micro infarcts, which will show up on cardiac MRI uh, with late gadolinium enhancement? Uh, and does this then contribute to the abnormal strain, right? Uh, you're cross-linking collagen uh, and you're gonna end up with a dysfunctional myocardium, even though the ejection fraction might be normal above 57% for women or super normal, could be 73%, and yet they're presenting in heart failure. So be on the lookout for this. And again, with the idea that if we can identify mechanistic pathways, we might be able to develop novel treatments. So to send you back to clinic with um, maybe something useful, uh, here's a case. 59-year-old African-American female presents with non-obstructive CAD, prediabetes, hyperlipidemia. Um, she has persistent chest pain. Uh, she has exercise-induced chest pressure, left-sided. She also is short of breath, mild diaphoresis, and it's been increasing in severity. Five years previous, she had a CCTA. Um, it was non-obstructive uh, in a couple of arteries, 25 to 49%. Her regadenosine spectmore contemporary shows no defects. And she's had multiple ED visits and hospitalizations for chest pain and acute coronary syndrome. So she's you know, a frequent flyer. She's not been ignored. The treating physicians have her on renalazine, atorvastatin, and some uh, PRN nitroglycerin. Well, what would you do with her? So we did pharmacologic probe trials in these kinds of patients. Uh, and what's a pharmacologic probe trial? It's a randomized placebo-controlled trial in a sm relatively small group. And you're probing intermediate outcomes that you know predict MACE, predict prognosis, to sort of try to make the case, provide a rationale and some preliminary uh, data for a larger uh, uh, outcome trial. So we demonstrated that quinapril, uh, shown in the top bar, um, improved coronary flow reserve and reduced angina at 16 weeks. Hmm. Who knew that ACE inhibitors were antianginal? Uh, FEMHRT, we, uh, before the whole Women's Health Initiative came out, we had the great idea that maybe estrogen was part of this, and it really wasn't. Um, the women did report less angina, although we think we probably confused that with their hot flashes. Um, Iplanarone uh, did not work. Uh, neither did a PD-5 inhibitor. Uh, in a pilot, uh, renalazine appeared to be improving um, our, our MRI uh, flow reserve, but in a larger, more definitive study, it, it was not uh, useful in the more heterogeneous population. We also demonstrated within that R-wise with renalazine uh, that improving coronary flow reserve uh, improved angina. So we demonstrated um, indirectly, but it was an aim of the study, uh, that the microvasculature is really the one that you should be going after if you're trying to improve angina as opposed to epicardial coronaries. And then here's another intermediate outcome trial done by Colin Berry and his colleagues in Scotland, uh, Cormica. Uh, again, they took folks that were undergoing elective angiography all the way to the left of the slide, stable angina referred in by, by their GPs. Um, those uh, that had obstructive coronary disease were uh, off in a registry. Uh, and you can see it's half. And this was women and men. So go to any cath lab you know, re registry now, you're gonna see open arteries about half of the time. Uh, but if you look at the non-obstructive CADs, those were randomized to angiographic guided treatment versus functionally guided treatment. So they actually had the coronary function testing. And because the um, cardiologists that were doing the testing uh, were not the treating cardiologists, this could be blinded. Um, and what they demonstrated all the way to the right is the Seattle Angina Questionnaire uh, scores were significantly improved in the functionally guided group, meaning when you pay attention to testing and you show that they have microvascular dysfunction, uh, you can improve their angina. 
And did it spontaneously improve? No, because they gave the treating physicians this algorithm. And it's super complicated, but of course, that's what we do in academics. So here's what you really do. Um, consider optimal medical therapy. Remember that IVIS data. The vast majority have substantial atherosclerosis. So low-dose aspirin, statin, and ACE as well as therapeutic lifestyle change. These are, our, these are our guidelines for secondary prevention, right? And this is what we do. This is what we should do all the time. And then for the angina burden, if they have that reduced dilation, that's the adenosine response, um, alpha beta blockers. And um, uh, we and, and the Scots use a lot of carbetalol and we use that heart failure protocol because it's super easy. And particularly if a patient is a woman, they're gonna do better at lower doses usually of beta blockers uh, before toxicity. Um, if they have increased vasoconstriction, calcium channel blockers are your friends. Um, uh, we use a lot of uh, all of them, actually, uh, but verapamil was preferred by the Scots. And then adjunctive therapy, we use EECP for a refractory. This is that those funny Japanese space boots, and um, Medicare pays for it, and it's non-invasive and very effective. Um, we also send them for high-intensity interval training uh, at cardiac rehab. Uh, and then for those that have abnormal um, nociception, which you know when you inject uh, the contrast or even sometimes the saline, ah, 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 doctor, doctor, that is my chest pain. Uh, you can use tricyclics for that and or send them to pain doctors. Um, here's our African-American case, woman, uh, functional coronary angiography. Um, we increasingly see um, non-functional bridges um, they will kind of come out um, if you look a, carefully or if you start to see they are a nidus for a site of provocation. As you can see um, in this second panel to adenosine, uh, the patient has an abnormal coronary flow reserve, 1.8, that's quite low, uh, as well as uh, adenosine-induced vasoconstriction. You can sort of see that in those smaller arteries. Um, she then has the acetylcholine, and, and this is actually where she uh, has a functional problem at that bridge. Uh, and again, it makes sense. We're born with bridges. Many of us have bridges. Most of them are non-functional, but they can serve as a, a site of uh, atherosclerosis because of the turbulence, because of the intimal injury. Um, and we don't fix the bridges. We just identify this as, oh, why did you get this? and why did this woman not, or this guy not? Um, and then you can see with the nitroglycerin, there's resolution of the vasoconstriction all the way to the far right. The patient does have an abnormal left ventricular and diastolic pilling pressure. So this is another treatment target and a reason why you always put that pigtail down. So after functional coronary angiography, we now can make diagnoses. Um, so number one, she has non-obstructive coronary atherosclerosis. There's a, there's a code for that. She has an elevated LVEDP. There's a code for that. Um, she had no evidence of uh, heightened cardiac nociception, so we don't have to give her those uh, meds. Um, and she has coronary microvascular dysfunction and coronary artery spasm. So we've got a lot of treatment targets. Um, so we started aspirin and enalapril. Remember, we're going to do optimal medical therapy. She was already on the Atorva, but she has atherosclerosis, so we're going to kick that up to 80. Um, we're going to put her on a deltiazem, a calcium channel blocker, uh, and uh, the renalazine was not working for her, so we don't maintain that, uh, and we send her to cardiac rehab and or uh, EECP. And then oh, my slide is coming off. At the very bottom, you can see her Seattle Angina questionnaire score at baseline was 51. The way that you look at SAC scores, 100 is perfect. You have no angina. Zero is horrible. You are in bed with angina all day. So she's right in the middle. And that means she's having multiple episodes of angina pretty much every day, multiple episodes per week. Uh, and so she kicks up to 68 at one-year follow-up. A 10-year improvement in a SAC score is clinically significant. Patients will thank you. Thank you, doctor. You've helped me. And um, at one-year follow-up, she's not been to the emergency room where previously she was going about three times a year. So with all that preliminary observational and pharmacologic probe trials, we designed and got the Department of Defense to fund our warrior trial. Women's ischemia treatment reduces events in non-obstructive CAD. 
You can see the investigators are listed there. This is 4,422 subjects who are women. It is a woman-only trial. Uh, and they have to have persistent angina and no obstructive coronary disease. And the trial design is randomizing to intensive medical therapy, which is uh, uh, high-intensity statin and maximally tolerated ACE or ARB and low-dose aspirin versus general primary care guideline risk factor management, treatment of hypertension, treatment of dyslipidemia. The outcome is reduction of MACE, which is all-cause death, non-fatal MI, stroke, hospitalization for angina or heart failure. Um, this is our design. We're still halfway through. We are up to 2,200. We, of course, have, you know, enrollment has not gone as fast as we anticipated due to the pandemic. Um, but it is a, a pretty easy, and we would love to add sites who can make substantial enrollment uh, because we're probably in another two years and the average patient will stay in about 18 months. Uh, but you can see it's a point of care randomization. It is using um, guidelines directed therapy. Patients, 50% that are randomized um, to the intensive medical therapy are provided the medication and we have a home um, uh, mail delivery. Uh, they can be consented, uh, randomized and enrolled uh, virtually. We shifted to all of that. Again, it's point of care. It does not interfere with usual care, meaning folks that are randomized to the guideline arm is usual care. Uh, their, their care does not change. There's nothing being withheld. Uh, so there's really no, um, there's no risk. There's nothing invasive. Um, and let me know if you guys would like to be a site um, because this is a federally funded uh, important study for guidelines. So I will conclude. Um, coronary microvascular dysfunction is prevalent in these INOCA patients, and this is a diagnosis that now can be made. Uh, the majority of these patients have coronary atherosclerosis. Treatment is low-dose aspirin and statin for prevention. Persistent angina and evidence of ischemia pretty good data now that you know they could be treated. There's gonna be benefits certainly from quality of life. There might be benefit for a reduction of adverse outcomes. The ESC guidelines have endorsed treatment strategies for their last two sets of guidelines. We finally, with our new chest pain guidelines, um, are uh, teetering on suggesting that these patients be treated. Um, so again, we still need these large outcome trials. There are two other trials. There's a large outcome trial in Sweden that is uh, way behind us. Uh, and then there's a smaller trial in uh, Scotland. Um, if you're interested, take a picture of this. Um, Dr. Samady knows where I live and um, we would love to have uh, additional subjects uh, uh, enrolled. And also we could tell you, um, for example, Emory is enrolling. So you could send your patients to Emory if you didn't wanna activate as a site. Um, and these are our uh, research subjects in the middle. Uh, we always uh, thank the patients first. Uh, thanks uh, to those that become participants uh, because they really are paying forward uh, for betterment of not only women, but I hope I've compelled you. I think we have a good future with uh, treating men. Uh, and then we've got our research teams on the other two sides and our funding on the bottom. So I will close with that and take questions if we've got time. Yep. Very good, thank you. Sure, thank you. If you are watching online and you have a question, please enter it in the Q&A bubble and we will ask that. Anyone in the audience with a question or comment? Mike, you're not, so you can sit back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, we do have a question online. We do. Okay, let's take a question online and I see Holly Jones has a question. Okay, we see, thanks for a great presentation. This is Dr. Rajay. Run across, thanks for a great presentation. Run across many patients with orthostatic signs and symptoms with CCB and or nitrates, especially with lower LVEDP. Any clinical suggestion? Yeah, any no, clinical suggest with medical therapy dosing strategies? 
Yeah, no, that's excellent. And um, the standard uh, that, you know, pretty much we were taught in cardiology is it might be Prince Metal, so start a calcium channel blocker. And we almost always do something like amlodipine because we love that drug because it's such a great blood pressure drug. It has 24-hour half-life. It's super easy. And yet it does cause hypotension uh, in people that are not hypertensive. And as I think I showed you, you know, the, you can't always, you can't predict who's going to have sort of the failure to dilate compared to the vasoconstrictive response. Uh, most of the patients that we see as secondary tertiary referrals have already failed calcium channel blockers. Um, and so, you know, a better sort of strategy if you're going to do empiric uh, dosing, which we do a lot of empiric dosing, meaning we don't test everybody invasively and we don't uh, do advanced imaging in, in everybody, particularly if the patient is in their 60s and they've had this persistent chest pain um, and they have risk factors. I mean, when's the last time you saw a patient in your practice that wasn't hypertensive, dyslipidemic, pre-diabetic and overweight and out of shape. I mean, this is, this is who we see. <laughs> so we do a lot of empiric uh, dosing, but we do it in young ones as well that are not hypertensive. I really like the carvedilol. I, I often start with that. Beta blockers work in patients that will take them. Um, and I, I think carvedilol is a, a better tolerated medication. And again, starting with that heart failure protocol, really low dose and then up titrating until you start to get a heart rate effect and or they start to tell you that they feel better. And, and if that doesn't work, um, you know, the other thing about nitrates, night, you know, Dr. Samadine and I grew up when we used to use a lot of long acting nitrates and we learned that nitrate tolerance is a real problem. And the majority of patients will be nitrate tolerant within three months. What does that mean? It's not working anymore because their upregulated metabolism, enzymatic, you can break it down as quick as you can take it. Um, there's data from Japan, which Japan has a lot of epicardial uh, coronary vasospasm, much more than, than we do. And there are good studies to support that it's probably an, an ethnic uh, difference. But here's the point. They don't use long-acting nitrates because it's been associated with an adverse prognosis in their sudden cardiac death survivors. Um, and why is that? Well, you get a drug that's working for you, and then three months later, it doesn't work anymore. Um, so uh, I, we're not a big fan of long-acting nitrates. I use them occasionally, but not as primary primary therapy. And then if she doesn't do well, she or he doesn't do well on this empiric treatment, you know, move on, start to get some, you know, you have a good interventionalist here who's setting up a great lab um, with a, a new a chair of your lab and um, get some definitive answers and or then move on, you know, go high intensity interval training, EECP, um, renalazine does work in some patients. Ibabradine does work in some patients. Um, I have a few patients on um, uh, the pulmonary hypertension drugs, the PD-5 inhibitors. If you find something that works, you know, use it. Is that helpful? Yeah, uh, that's great. Uh, let me just add to that because so, um, uh, Noel, let me ask you about this. So you've got this business of when do you trigger the invasive test? Right. Um, I think it's extraordinarily thoughtful the way that you presented the, the whole sort of base of the iceberg of patients that you get. Right. And then the, the criteria that go into who has an invasive cath. I think one of the things we found helpful for that patient, Dr. Rajay asked about with hypotension with nitrates and calcium blockers is that the endotyping in the cath lab, as you mentioned, does help you figure out if yeah. that's their problem. Right. right, because if, if actually their problem is you're not blind. vasospastic, you're flying blind. And if your problem is a distal microvasculature issue, then as you mm -hmm. pointed out, yeah. you actually pivot and focus on ACE inhibitors and right. um, aspirin and other things. So I think that's where the the you know for those patients that are hypotensive with persistent symptoms, it's something to consider. Um, and, and I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask one more question. Just just pick your brain. Um, so uh, what's your experience been with um, other beta blockers, mm -hmm. um, right? Because mm -hmm. you, you worry, especially if you're worried about a, you know, vasospastic component or an right. endothelial dysfunction component about vasospasm, obviously corvetolol is both an alpha and a beta. Right. 
Um, what about nabivalol, for yeah. instance? Uh, we, what are your thoughts and experience with that? Um, we definitely use nabivalol. It um, until recently was not generic, so it was uh, substantially more expensive. And um, it, you know, if you you tell people, look, I can give you this one that I kind of like because I sometimes I split the dose with the carvedilol as well. I might give them a higher dose in the morning and a lower dose at night, or I might even have them skip the dose at night if they're having any no nocturnal angina. Um, so it's it's kind of a nice drug. You have to have a patient that's willing to take something twice a day, right? They need to work with you. Yeah. Um, and then nabivalol, I think, I mean, my clinical impression is that it is a better antihypertensive. So if you're having trouble with blood pressure going down too low, uh, you know, nabivalol. And, and, and again, nabivalol is, you know, most of the beta blocker dosing is, is boy dosing. Um, and uh, it, it just may be, you know, yeah. and, you know, you never know how much women complain of side effects more than men, which they do. You don't know how much of that is because women have a higher somatic awareness. They're more verbal. I mean, there's a million psychologic reasons for women to tell us about, you know, side effects versus all of the, our pharmacopoeia basically is, except for hormone therapy, is based on male 70 kilo, you know. And, uh, I, you know, I, so anyway, we look for opportunities to try to customize the dose uh, and be a little more precision medicine. Yeah, I, I love those little probing investigations you pointed out because it's, you know, the, the endotypes of disease are so varied that yeah. to some extent, uh, you don't know where to start from, from a pharmacotherapy right. standpoint. We did a study comparing a randomized controlled study with invasive measurements comparing nabivalol to atenolol okay. with 12-week double-sequenced invasive testing and essentially found no difference. No difference. But to your point, um, you know, that's all comers. You mm -hmm. know, what about the people that are predominantly right. vasospastic? And mm -hmm. clinically, we've seen it work really well in people that are nitrate intolerant or mm -hmm. can't do the calcium blockers. So it's kind of that clinical expertise in this complex syndrome that, yeah. that helps. Yeah, and I think nabivalol is really is a good drug for somebody who says, I want a once a day drug. I'm, you know, above 70 kilo, I'm whatever. I mean, we definitely use it. Um, and I do think that there's um, something to be said for the incessant improvement of drugs, right? Mm -hmm. um, did you not find a difference in blood pressure? It's what we compared atenolol to nabivalol. Right. And actually, we did not, and it was a relatively small study, so okay. we didn't see a so significant we'll difference. Yeah. But the renolazine story is very interesting, yes. right? Because, <laughs> I mean, renolazine is something that now is used very, very widely. Yeah. And your RY study, yeah. uh, which was, I think, 120 mm -hmm. or 130 mm -hmm. patients Correct. showed no difference. We did a smaller study using two invasive measurements with mm -hmm. renolazine against placebo. Right. And we didn't find a difference mm -hmm. in either the Seattle angina classification or the physiologic testing. Interestingly, we found that if you started out with a CFR mm -hmm. of less than two, mm -hmm. obviously smaller subgroup, right? Because mm -hmm. they come in with disease that you did get a bump in your CFR uh, with renolazine. So we it's just, too. is That's, that right? Yeah, that was our pre-specified subgroup analysis. Yeah. But um, when we expanded to the sort of more homogeneous, you know, so you could have the dilation, you could have the constriction, you could have both um, in the aggregate, we didn't see a difference. So yeah, it wasn't a completely negative trial, mm -hmm. um, but you know, if you, if you hope that renolazine will solve all of these problems, the answer is no, right. but if you can endotype and or you get lucky, um, I would say maybe 20% of our patients are on renolazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we, if, if they say, yes, I feel better and we do the SAC scores in clinic, then you know that's good enough for us. We Absolutely. don't have to show the flow reserve improved. Um, mm -hmm. Jennifer. Uh, thank you so much, a really wonderful talk. Um, you know, as a, as a fellow, I was involved in looking at mental stress ischemia um, when I was at Emory uh, with Dr. Vaccarino and Dr. Kiyumi. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was actually running uh, the stress test on those patients where we had uh, patients that had proven CAD, so they were not, you know, normal coronaries necessarily. And we would randomize them, or not randomize them, we would do a mental stress test, which was a public 
speech, uh, basically, uh, versus a physical stress test on a treadmill and do imaging component. And what we found was really interesting that patients um, had ischemia on imaging uh, with mental stress and not physical stress would be the same patient. Mm -hmm. Some of them actually had ischemia on both, but the territories involved were completely different. So they would have like LED ischemia on their on their physical stress, but it would be RCA on the um, mm -hmm. on the mental stress. Um, and back to your point about uh, Takotsubu um, as being being part of that spectrum, I'm kind of curious about what your thoughts are on that brain heart connection in terms of the mechanism of of this pathology, and whether we should be shifting and focusing maybe a bit more on medications that could treat or kind of manage that kind of neuromodulation uh, in addition to the standard cardiac medications that you have uh, mentioned in, in your um, in that new uh, proposal. Um, I know there's some studies we're looking at SSRIs and, and whatnot, but um, just curious what your thoughts about uh, are about this. Yeah, no, you're you're making good bedside observations that always sort of then stimulate, you know, it's a, hmm, that's interesting. That's a knowledge gap. Like, I don't really know what to do with that. Um, maybe we should do some more research. Um, so I appreciate your, your observations. We actually did, to my knowledge, uh, working with Dr. Alan Rosansky and Dan Berman uh, when I was a fellow and published in the New England Journal the first time uh, that uh, mental stress testing was demonstrated to demonstrate ischemia. And amazingly, we did it with those old muggas. And um, we had blinded, you know, we were blinded to the patient and sequence and um, amazingly could diagnose ischemia. Uh, in response to the mental stress, um, we did a Stroop word, a math test in the public speaking. And the public speaking was about something that you were embarrassed or, you know, um, something you'd done bad. And you had to do it in front of three white coated observers with a, um, and I was often one of the observers. Uh, with a notepad, uh, and it was it was videotaped. Uh, anyway, that was in the New England Journal, and then we subsequently did intervention studies. Uh, we did it with an SSRI, uh, no uh, protection. We did it with a Valium. They all fell asleep. They couldn't. They couldn't do the <laughs> testing. Um, and then we did it with the beta blocker, and in a small case series, the beta blockers uh, blocked some of this, which was interesting because. At that time in the silent ischemia era, uh, the, the silent ischemia investigators, Pepin was one of them and the Brigham, uh, there was high heart rate ischemia and low heart rate ischemia, meaning ST segment depressions on ambulatory monitoring that would happen at, at different. And so you always think of high heart rate ischemia as being exercise at some kind of activity. Uh, but some of these mental stress patients could get quite tachycardic with their uh, ischemia. And um, so beta blockers were uh, effective in, in that small, small study. And then um, Takatsubo, it's pretty clear from the literature, not our work yet, that they do have residual microvascular uh, dysfunction. Uh, Amir Lerman and other people have shown that. And um, that we, what you don't know is, was that a result of the Takatsubo? You know, was that damage? Or was that pre-existing, and they actually just had silent, silent condition, and then it it became, you know, the Takotsubo might be the tip of the iceberg, and there's all this microvascular dysfunction underneath. Um, and then I'll just point you're you're asking about heart brain. Uh, we're doing MIBG scanning, so that's the sympathetic nervous system in the heart. Uh, and we're doing um, anatomical and functional MRI brain testing in Takotsubo survivors. Uh, we've only enrolled, I don't know, 20, again, impacted by the pandemic, uh, but th it's ongoing and look in the literature, hopefully in a year or two, we'll have some publication about that. And the idea is that there are like GABA blockers, there are NET, norepinephrine uptake inhibitor blockers, I mean, there might be an opportunity and it would be necessarily, it would be secondary prevention. As much as we now, you know, see Takotsubos, we talk about Takotsubos, it's still a very small piece of the acute coronary syndrome pie. 
Um, and so this idea that we could primarily prevent, I think at least right now seems we can't, we can't predict, so it would be hard to primarily prevent. But because it has a recurrence rate as high as 20%, and because it is now unfolding that they are abnormal after the original event, even though they recover their ejection fraction, they are persistently abnormal in addition to um, having do documented microvascular dysfunction. Um, they have residual abnormal strain, and often they have persistent chest pain and shortness of breath. So if half of them aren't abnormal, then that's a good treatment target. And if we can figure out how to treat them, uh, we would we would do that, hope to do that. Yeah. Well, you, you can see, um, so it seems like we have one other question. I'm, I'm sensitive to everyone's time, um, but I do want to just point out that what Dr. Barry Mertz has shared with us is really the complexity yeah. that we're uncovering, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's so amazing to me that the practice of medicine, the contemporary practice of medicine always lags behind yeah. by a decade Usually or more. Tenure technology transfer. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so, right? So we, we think about patients coming to our cath labs, our echo labs, our stress labs, going in and out quickly. Uh, but you can see that the base of the iceberg, both metaphorically and really in this case, from a microvascular standpoint, is, is where a lot of the action is. And we're you're helping us start to uncover that. Um, and um, it's just so inspiring that work that started several decades ago has now completely mushroomed and has revolutionized the way we think about ischemic heart disease. Um, so uh, Suzanne, I know we're running late on time and I know Holly had a question, but maybe we can take one more virtual question and then maybe we can wrap up and, and maybe if you can be around for a few more I'm minutes and to, take yeah, some questions. Of course. Yes, and if uh, any questions that we're not able to get to, you're welcome to email me and I'll make sure that Dr. Mary Merce gets the question and you can have your question answered. Um, so you, you touched on this one a little bit already, um, but it says, thank you for the excellent talk. A lot of women in my practice seem to be intolerant to beta blockers, fatigue very commonly. Which ones do you prefer and are more tolerated in your experience? Yeah, so a, a little revisionist, but um, carvedilol. And if you, if um, again, it's hard to remember what somebody says verbally, but look up that Cormica study, Colin Berry, B-E-R-R-Y, because uh, they have a really nice treatment algorithm. And um, uh, so low doses of carvedilol is kind of our preferred go-to beta blocker. And then another clinical pearl could be a glass bead. Um, I, you know, you can become a magnet for women that are fatigued and, uh, here's Noelle's approach to fatigue. You, you know, this is not due to your heart until you're in class four heart failure. I know that you're not in class four heart failure. I cannot fix your fatigue. Do you want to talk about your chest pain? And it's a little brusque, but, uh, you don't want to be taking on the, the weight of the world. Uh, and you want to be able to offer, you know, useful information for people that are, you know, not doctor shopping and don't have issues, often social determinants of health that, you know, often we don't have the tools to, to fix that. So um, try not to see chronic fatigue syndrome. <laughs> Well, listen, thank you so much for an outstanding presentation. Okay, We're going to go pleasure. over to the studio and capture some more thoughts. Okay. And so, um, as you all know, you can uh, probably see all of Dr. Barry Mertz's presentation online pretty soon, uh, but also you'll see her interview where she might give us even more pearls. So thank you so much. If you don't know what to do, send them to the warrior trial. <laughs>